Thank you, Siobhan. It's a very great pleasure to be here today. Thomas More's claims to be a great songwriter, and in particular, a lyricist of rare skill, stand the test of time. This mastery is particularly evident in two of his most commercially successful works, The Irish Melodies and Lala Rook. For a modern Irish audience, the melodies will still be familiar, but Lala Rook is possibly less well known. And yet in Moore's own time, both works were renowned across Europe and beyond. In today's talk, I want to demonstrate Moore's skilled cultivation of sentimental responses in his readers or auditors. I argue that the success of both the Irish melodies and Lala Rook is a result of this particular talent. The talk will be supported by images and recorded musical examples found on the Aaron webpage. There will be a bit of toggling to and fro because I, I really want to use the site today to show you, so sort of bear with it. So that's the home page for our, our website. And I'll tell you a little bit about it. And this is a resource that anyone can find on the internet. And Siobhan's already introduced you to the acronym, Europe's Reception of the Irish Melodies and National Airs. And it's about Thomas More in Europe in the 19th century. The project was funded by the Horizon 2020 framework of the European Union, and it documents the travels of more songs across Europe in the 19th century. And to do this, Triona Hanlon and I designed and created a catalogue that records musical works either written by or inspired by Thomas More as found in eight European libraries. These records you can explore through the search resources tab, which you see in front of you. In the podcast link, you will find over 40 musical recordings created specifically for the project. And you will hear many of these in today's lecture. I will also draw on the collections of images we published as part of the project. And you can explore these yourselves by clicking on one of three links. One for the Irish Melodies, another for the National Airs, which was also lyrics by more set to European tunes that was quite influential in its day, or Lala Rook. And since I'm going to start the talk with Lala Rook, let's open that link. Lala Rook is an Eastern romance told in a mixture of prose and poetry. The title character, a Mughal princess, journeys to Delhi to marry the crown prince of Bukharia. She is accompanied on this journey by a train of courtiers, led by her father's vice chamberlain, Fadladeen. Fadladeen is a fussy and self-important man who takes his role as Lala Rook's official chaperone very seriously indeed. Lala's train also includes a handsome young poet named Feramortz, who beguiles the princess with a series of four stories that he narrates through the course of their journey. Between the telling of each tale, Moore returns to the story of Lala Rook and her poet, and so we see Feramortz increasingly endearing himself to the princess. By the time they reach Delhi, she realizes that she is in love with him. On the day of the wedding, Feramortz reveals himself as the crown prince of Bukharia in disguise. He had deliberately done this to court his future bride. And so, as true lovers, Lala Rook and Feramortz marry and live happily ever after. Now that I've summarized the story, I'm going to show you some images inspired by it. Uh, first, let's find an image of the princess. If you scroll down to the bottom, you will find two kind of links at the bottom. One will be a collection of images, and the other is an exhibit. And I won't open the exhibits today, but the exhibit draws on the images, and in, in it we sort of suggest a story for you. Or you can just go straight to the images and find your own information. So let's find Lala Rook. 
I'm going for a particular one here. So you'll get an image and you get an information. I'm not going to give you long enough to read this now, but just to scroll down to give you an impression that you get a range of types of information describing it, who were the different creators involved, uh, who published it, uh, the rights, and then if you want to see the image, you can click it to different sizes. So this is a particular image of the princess done by the engraver Kenny Meadows. And he has done many wonderful images for Moore. And he was a, 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 an exact contemporary of Moore. So there's Lala Rook. Let's find Fadladine. I'm not going to do this through the whole talk, just for a brief portion here so you get used to the site. This image is by, engraved by Richard Westall. And I think it's particularly effective at showing the budding attraction between the young people. You see them looking at each other and also establishing Fadladeen as a disapproving barrier to this attraction. Thomas More published Lala Rook with Longmans, a prominent London publisher, in May of 1817. It was a tremendously successful work, reaching over 20 editions in More's lifetime. Portions of it were translated into several European languages, including French, German, Italian, and Spanish. Beg your pardon. Lala Rook and Spanish. Lala Rook also inspired a range of musical and theatrical works, and it is these that I will explore with you today. The publication of Lala Rook with Longmans was complemented by a number of songs issued by Moore's music publisher, James Power. Originally from Dublin, James had moved to London a few years previous, from whence he published Moore's Irish Melodies and National Airs, amongst other musical projects of the poets. Most of the Lala Rook songs appeared as actual lyrics within Moore's Oriental Romance. Faramort's tales themselves include several songs within them. So let's explore some of these now, and along that journey pause to appreciate Moore's capacity to induce sentiment in us. The first story that Fairmortz tells to tell Lalaruk is the dark tale of the veiled prophet. It is the story of a false prophet, Makana, who presides over a dissolute court. And then the image you will see eventually will be of, of Makana, uh, as, as engraved by John Tenniel, parading with Zelika. The veil he wears hides a physical disfigurement that parallels his moral depravity. In his harem is a young woman, Zelika. She came under Mokana's spell after losing her lover in battle. That very lover, a young warrior named Itzim, shows up at Mokana's court and the prophet commands Zelika to seduce him. She has sworn total obedience to Mokana and so she is obliged to uh, do as he tells her. But she fears for Itzim as she no longer trusts the prophet. Zelika approaches Itzim to sing him a song. She is so altered that he does not recognize her. And at this point, you will get to see a slide with the lyrics. And the song is Bendemir's Stream. It's a nostalgic reflection on the sweet dreams of a lost past and is very appropriate to Zelika's present. Moore's references to withered roses, a departed summer, and a dying delight establish the narrator as a person who's entirely lost hope and so warrants our sympathy. The fact that Zelika views her past as utterly lost sets up the tragic ending to this story. She sets up her own death rather than offer to it seem a person and body defiled by a relationship with Mokana. 
The lyrics to Bendemeer's Stream were set by no fewer than four of Moore's contemporaries in the London music scene, including the society hostess Lady Flint. And if you want to know more about Lady Flint, uh, one of the resources in Project Erin is a blog site, and on that there is a blog about Lady Flint. You could look her up in the interface and you'll find her. Okay, let's go back to where we were in the PowerPoint. I'll just talk you through a couple of images and then we'll play that first song. So we saw Moore's portrait. This is Mokana parading with Zelika, showing her off. And then it's seen prostrating himself before the veiled prophet, a different artist. I think that that's Corbeau, the that one. Then we have the lyrics to Bendemeer's Stream, which I talked you through, and that's an illustration of Zelika singing to its scene. And then we were going to go on to this to hear the performance. And the performance you will hear, I will have to scroll to find it, is going to be uh, Lady Flint's setting of the lyrics by, with a performance by Martha O'Brien and Aoife O'Sullivan. examples off just so you can hear as many as we can in the time. You can go back and hear the whole recording uh, at your own leisure and I'd encourage you to do that. So we've just heard Lady Flint's setting of Bendemeer's Stream. Uh, and of course if we can't pass over this song without mentioning the entire opera derived from The Veiled Prophet as set by Charles Villiers Stanford in 1877. Stanford's opera featured in the Wexford Festival recently, produced by Una Hunt. And as you may know from the Royal Irish Academy's program, Una will be speaking in the lecture series next week. And we're going to hear the opening verse of the Stanford, once again performed by Martha O'Brien and Aoife O'Sullivan for Project Erin. tale for Lala Rook was Paradise and the Peri. The Peri was a Persian angel who had fallen from grace. The angel who guards heaven's gate tells the Peri she must bring back the gift that is most dear to heaven. The Peri goes on three different quests in different parts of the world to find such a gift. The first two quests where she brings back the drop of a blood from a hero 
and the final sigh from a dying lover, see a renewed denial by the angel guard. And so by the time of her third quest, Moore's readers are really fully engaged with the Perry and in complete sympathy with her. So this is how Moore does it. He sets up the situation. On her final journey, she discovers an aged sinner weeping at the sight of a praying child and brings back one tear to the angel. This sign of repentance is that most dear gift. And so the Perry is finally permitted to enter paradise. Moore's Paradise and the Perry has but one song lyric within it. This is the Perry's rapturous response to her own redemption. Joy, joy forever, my task is done. The gates are passed and heaven is won. This lyric attracted a setting by the English composer John Clark Whitfield, who was based in Dublin for a while, and James Power published and sold this. Power would have been targeting a domestic market ever keen for new parlor songs. Indeed, song was the dominant form of chamber music in the early decades of the 19th century. We're now going to hear Project Aaron's recording featuring a live performance by former Queen's University of Belfast music students, Ellen Campbell and Ellison Montgomery. <laughs> which is Faramort's third tale, returns to a darker tone. This is the story of young love blighted by sectarian violence. The setting is ancient Persia, at a time when the fire worshippers or gabers were combating an invasion of Muslim Arabs. We meet the Arabian princess Hinda, whose father Al-Hassad has brought her to Persia while he leads the invasion. They live in a remote tower that is penetrated one night by a bold young man while the chieftain is absent. He and Hinda quickly develop a mutual attraction, which is not at all diminished when the young man reveals his identity as an enemy Gaber by showing Hinda his characteristic belt. When Hinda learns of her father's plan to conquer the Gabers, she resolves to share this with her young man and departs in a small boat to find him. While on the boat, she reflects deeply on her faith and its conflict with her love. The English composer Thomas Atwood was attracted to this passage of Moore's text, which is not a song in the original. Her hands were clasped, her eyes upturned, dropping their tears like moonlight rain. And though her lip fond raver burned with words of passion, bold, profane, yet there was a light around her brow, a holiness in those dark eyes, which showed, though wandering earthward now, her spirit's home was in the skies. 
Atwood set the words depicting Hinda's tumult in a musically flexible recitative passage, followed by an aria that reflects on her unaltered purity of spirit. This passage cultivates our sympathy in Hinda as a character. We're now going to hear Project Aaron's recording of Atwood's music as performed by Martha O'Brien and Aoife O'Sullivan. had studied with Mozart. The brave Hinda is not destined to survive, alas. Unfortunately for the lovers, the Arab forces succeed in overcoming the Gabers, and Hinda's beloved throws himself on the flames of the Gaber temple rather than become a captive. Hinda, once again in a boat, oversees the sacrifice and throws herself into the water, where she drowns. At this point, Moore does introduce a song sung by the Perry, who we met in the previous story. And Moore's own songs tend to mark particularly intense or poignant moments in Lala Rook, as is the case here. And the song is Farewell to These Arabies Daughter, which once again was set by more than one of Moore's contemporaries. You see the title page for Kjalmark's version, but what you're going to hear is the Philadelphia-based music publisher John G. Clem's setting of it, again performed by Aoife Sullivan, but this time with the mezzo-soprano Helen Aikam. forthcoming nuptials, Faramort chooses a love story with a happy ending, Light of the Harim, for his final tale. The Crown Prince Salem and his favoured concubine Nurmahal have become estranged. She seeks the help of a benign enchantress to regain her place in her lover's heart. The enchantress sings Namuna's song while she weaves a spell, and she arranges that the spirit of love sings to Nurmahal while she sleeps. The spirit song reminds the sleepy Nurmahal of music's power to effect reconciliation. This episode inspires Nurmahal to sing a song directed to her lover at, the, at an evening banquet. Fly to the Desert is a lyric of some 11 verses. It is a direct sentimental appeal from Nurmahal to her lover that reminds him of the good times they have shared. The first, tenth, and final verses suffice for suggesting the narrative arc. Fly to the desert, fly with me. Our Arab tents are rude for thee. But oh, the choice, what heart can doubt, of tents with love or thrones without. But if for me thou dost forsake, some other maid and rudely break her worshipped image from its base, to give me the ruined place, 
then fare thee well. I'd rather make my bower on some icy lake than thawing songs begin to shine, than trust to love so false as thine. Salem, deeply moved, embraces his beloved while promising eternal love. As he catches Nurmahal in his arms, he releases a series of responses from her, blushes, brightened glances, dawning smiles and sighs, all serve to tell us that the lovers are firmly united. And aptly, more reserves this lightly pitched appeal to our sentiments for this, the one song that affects the denouement of the plot, and it was sung directly by one character to another. We're now going to hear a brief bit from Georg Kalmark's setting of the first two verses of Moore's lyrics, performed live by former Queen's University Belfast music students Sarah Coulter and Megan Clay. the principal musical response to Moore's Lala Rooks changes from individual songs aimed at the domestic market to larger scale works suitable for the newly popular choral societies. These institutions, supported by music publishers, facilitated a widespread and repeated exposure to music inspired by Moore's Oriental Romance. This phenomenon continued in a sustained way into the early years of the 20th century. The first and most famous choral work set to Moore's Laula work was Robert Schumann's Das Paradies in Die Perry in Leipzig in 1843. This was subsequently performed elsewhere in Germany and in America, Dublin, London, and Paris, sometimes in English or in French translation. Schumann's setting of an adapted version of Moore's tale of the Perry helped establish his own reputation. You may recall that the Perry was repeatedly denied entrance into paradise despite her best efforts to discover a gift. Schumann, who expressed the pleasure and inspiration that Moore's Lala Rook brought to him in his diary, captures so vividly the intensity of the Perry's despair every time she's denied entrance to paradise. Here we hear Helen Aiken and Aoife O'Sullivan in Schumann's setting. that off so soon, 
but I do want to get you a chance to hear a couple of other pieces before I finish. Okay, so Schumann's setting also seems to have planted a seed at the Leipzig Conservatory, where he was a founding member. We see further settings of more by British musicians who trained there. One was John Francis Barnard, who composed a cantata, Paradise in the Perry, for the Birmingham Triennial Musical Festival in 1870. And uh, this had repeated performances at Crystal Palace and by choral societies in Norwood, Brixton, and Frith, as well as Madras. Another Brit who trained in Leipzig was Frederick Clay, and his 1877 setting uh, was a uh, a fictionalized account of the developing relationship between Lala Rook uh, and her poet, as written by W. G. Wills, and it was a, uh, and it ends in a wedding, just as Moore's does. And the beguiling song uh, that the poet uses to uh, endear himself to the princess is "I'll sing thee songs of Araby." It was an immediate hit, and it was subsequently inspired various arrangements for accordion, for men's chorus, and other types of arrangements. And you can find John McCormick singing this on YouTube. But I'm going to play you tenor Matthew Campbell and pianist Jenny Garrett's live rendition of this. And it's worth pointing that out. Some of the recordings you hear are of, of young professionals who had a chance to do repeated takes. Uh, the ones of my students doing it was from a live performance we did, so there were no retakes possible. So that's why you'll hear little errors sometimes. the Irish melodies. Uh, Moore's mar remarkable popular appeal is suggested by notable evidence of reprints, translations, and spin-off products of his work until around the time of World War I. This appeal is arguably based on his extraordinary capacity for establishing sympathy for characters in Lala Rook and for the Irish nation through his Irish melodies. This was a 10-volume series with first editions spanning just over a quarter of a century, and we can understand this as more sustained bid to cultivate a community of readers sympathetic to Ireland, to her history, and to her culture, and through this process, also to her contemporary political situation. As Una Hunt has noted, Moore is extremely careful not to directly evoke current or recent events. And this demonstrates a political savvy that not all commentators have appreciated. As Joe Sanders explains, sympathy is an emotion made up of a potent concoction of guilt, affection, and admiration. Moore is particularly adept at cultivating these feelings through his lyrics for the Irish melodies. 
more develops Ireland personified as Erin is worthy of affection. In Erin the tear and the smile in thine eyes, she is a sorrowful figure longing for peace. In as vanquished Erin, she weeps at the annual event, the 12th of July, of discord arising from the river Boyne to shoot venomed darts. Let Erin remember the days of old, sees Ireland recalling her past glories. In Old Blame Not the Bard, more promises to celebrate the glorious past of a figure worthy of love. Thy name, loved Erin, shall live in his songs. Many of the Irish melodies invite sympathy for a wronged party. In no fewer than nine, where freedom or liberty is a theme, the wrong experienced is liberty's loss. Remarkably, most of the Irish melodies that evoke the harp also concern themselves with lost freedom, including My Gentle Harp, Sing Sweet Harp, and The Harp That Once. And to conclude this talk, let's consider the minstrel boy, the fallen musician who destroys his harp rather than risk it becoming a slave to the enemy. The minstrel fell, but the foeman's chain could not bring his proud soul under. The harp he loved ne'er spoke again, for he tore its cords asunder, and said, No chains shall sully thee, thou soul of love and bravery. Thy songs were made for the pure and free. They shall never sound in slavery.